0: This is Jennifer Reed, the good dietitian, and this is Healthy, Holy, Whole. And tonight, my wonderful guest is my good friend and registered dietitian and certified diabetes care and education specialist, Dina Hampton. And Dina has a wonderful um, background in nutrition. She taught me so many things uh, when we worked together, and I'm excited to have her on so we can have this amazing conversation about diabetes and caring for people with diabetes when it comes to nutrition um, as we are the nutrition experts. So, Dina graduated with her master's in nutrition, dietetics, and health sciences from the University of Nebraska as she completed her dietetic internship at The Ohio State University. She is a skilled registered dietitian and certified diabetes care and education specialist with over seven years of experience in a variety of settings, including adult and pediatric. Uh, hospitals, acute care facilities, patient clinics, community-based organizations, and through her various work experiences, she has become proficient in creating individualized nutrition care plans on patients with nutritional needs and dietary restrictions and other health factors. And currently, she is working at the Memphis Veterans Affairs Medical Center, specializing in outpatient care. So help me welcome Dina Hampton. Dina Dina Hampton. (laughs) We got married, Jen. We got married. Yay. Okay. Thank you, so thank you so much for having me. So good to see you.
1: Thank you. I
0: am so excited to have you. You were um on the 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 top of my list when I was thinking about different <laughs> podcasts and, and what could I do and who could I have. Um, because again, I just I learned so much from you um oh when gracious. we worked together at LaBonner. I mean, you were such a a, a great mentor to me. Um and uh, so tonight, we're both um, certified diabetes care and education specialist. Um, we're both working in a little bit of a different setting. You at the VA, myself uh, with Baptist, I manage the uh, Baptist diabetes program. Um, and so I thought it would be really good to just sort of touch base on diabetes and nutrition care and get your thoughts and ideas on, you know, so what what are some of the challenges that you face or you see um, when it comes to um, trying to counsel and, and
1: talk with patients who have diabetes? Right. I think the biggest thing, especially in my population, we have a older population in the veteran population here in Memphis, is trying to get over that stigma. A lot of times they're used to seeing what their grandfathers had or their grandparents their parents who may be deceased by now, um, when diabetes care and education wasn't at the standard that we have today. So getting over that stigma of oh, I'm automatically gonna lose a limb or I can't eat anything and everything is all about the sugars and things like that. I think that's the biggest barrier when they're first diagnosed is trying to get them over that stigma and in the new way of thinking.
0: I agree 100%. That is absolutely a barrier because you're right. you know maybe 10 15 even 20 years ago this type of diabetes nutrition education was not available um, or at least not available on a large scale like it is today Um, Mm -hmm. and even today um, statistics from the ada uh, american diabetes association says only six percent of all patients diagnosed with diabetes ever get to education with us and this type of diabetes education so so if they don't know so you know, that stigma is there in the sense that, yeah, I'm just automatically going to be sick and I'm going to have amputations. Um, I would also say that then once we get past that, because sometimes what I see is just this, this absolute denial. So, so they, they, they will deny that. Oh, I don't really have diabetes. Well, your A1C is 11. I'm sorry, but you do.
1: Um, I feel fine. I feel fine. Yeah.
0: A good, I was like, well, I was like, you know, I feel like we should also change um, diabetes. You know, we we consider um, hypertension or high blood pressure, the silent killer. I feel like diabetes is the same because you can have blood sugars of 600. You can be walking around blood sugars as high as 600, not feel it, not know it. Right. And that can go on for a long time till your body gets to the point it's so sick that, okay, well, now you know something's wrong, but you've right. had those high blood sugars for a while. Um, and I'm not, I don't know, uh, if you have these same experiences as well, but so then once we get past the stigma of, okay, it's diabetes and we've done a terrible job in society of blaming and shaming people who have diabetes because, right. well, we sort of tell them it's their fault. Well, you way too much at your fault. Um, even though that's not always the case because there are over 200 genomes for type two diabetes. So Not everybody's type two diabetes is related to weight, even though we still treat them that way. But then the other barrier for me is, okay, so I now have to dispel all of the nutrition and dietary myths that have been perpetuated by the fad diet community, which then also gets perpetuated and placed uh, on our patients from doctors.
1: Yes. And you kind of mentioned it before how only 6% of, of patients get to that, get to us. And I think a lot of times, we don't have that support from our physicians and they're just so quick to say white's not right and give them a pill. And they're only in there for 15 minutes with a new diagnosis and you know they leave their patients scared. But I think if we were to have more interdisciplinary communication and really get those referrals to us so we can manage that, take more time with the patient, Let them know more about the disease. Like you said, there's over 200 genomes. It's not your fault. It may, you know, maybe different things. We can definitely alter some lifestyle changes for you. We can make it work to fit you because we have the time and we have the expertise to do those things. Right. So I think it is really all about the interdisciplinary communication. Not just straight out saying white's not right and giving them the metformin pill and sending them on your way. So it's really about that communication and that transition from just the diagnosis to the education that we really need to start doing a better job of. I agree 100 um, percent.
0: I'm like a one 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 woman dietitian crusade. Uh, <laughs> you really are. End fad diets. I am. And here's really the are. point where, you know, that's why none of my friends or none of the ladies from church, nobody asked me for nutrition advice anymore. Cause you know, Larry uh says when I'm wrong, I'm extremely humble. But he said when you're right, you're kind of mean. <laughs> so, but I'm not trying to be I I'm not trying to be mean. It's just that, you know, everything we know now, everything we know today. Um, number one, nobody with diabetes, uh, type two diabetes ever has to be sick again. Nobody has to lose, uh, toes. Nobody has to lose their kidneys. Nobody right. has to have a heart attack. Nobody has to go blind. None of those have to happen. But I will tell you that in doing my research, um, for my presentation at conference this year, um, which you saw cause you, you were nice enough to help me try to make it pretty, um, <laughs> and understandable, um, All of those things related to diabetes, um, all those chronic complications, um, kidney disease, heart disease, blindness, amputations, every single one of those complications are up, not down. And that's because they're not getting the whole picture. They're not getting all this because we know scientifically speaking and, and, and studies have proven that medication alone will not keep those blood sugars down. Right. And diets alone. I have got tons of stuff in front of me right now because, you know, um, I'm a research junkie and um, everything points to the fact that diets fail. And we have to keep in mind, diets were brought about for weight loss, not necessarily diabetes. Mm -hmm. And just losing weight does not always fix diabetes. Right. And so what if we just approached diabetes and other areas of our health with, okay, well, let's, let's just try eating healthy um, and being a little more physically active. What if we stopped focusing just on weight and weight loss and focused on eating healthy and being well with our diabetes? Because it's, you know, we, we have to be able, in fact, um, one of the things uh, that we heard this week uh, that came from a doctor um, he, he told a patient to, to, he didn't, he didn't bring up whites, um, necessarily. He just said, don't eat, or he said, eat dark carbs. And I was like, dark carbs. What is dark carbs? Is is that is it going to the dark I, side? I don't know talking what that means. You know, does <laughs> the Darth Vader have his own set of carbs now? I don't, are the white, <laughs> no you know, idea. the Jedi? I don't either. Right. I don't either. It I'm assuming he means, you know, our browns, our whole brains, but right. he, he called them dark carbs. And yes. so the patient was scared to death to eat. She didn't right. know what to eat. And I was like, we're just, you know, so we're we're constantly having to peel back the layers of disinformation and junk science that we as Americans have been fed um. For years, when it comes to uh, diabetes, carbohydrates, how they affect our blood sugars, um, and all of those things. And so, for me, sometimes that's one of the biggest barriers um, that I have to get over so that they understand um, I can eat carbs, my body needs them. Right. Um, You know, we just may not always need as much as we've been used to getting, but we still need them to get that absolute best blood sugar control. Um, Right. And then I would also say, so you you brought it up, so I'm going to kind of go there. Um, So I also see that general practitioners um, don't always know those diabetes medications maybe as well um, as, say, you know, um, an endocrinologist or even a diabetes educator. Um, And I know it's our business to know them. But because maybe if they don't know them so well or they're not super comfortable with some of those um, what we see and we know nationally because um, we talk about it, you know, it's been a topic of conversation the last two years um, kind of at conference um, is physician inertia. So this idea that physicians um, are as willing to kick that diabetes can down the road sometimes as the patient. And so if the patient If your doctor doesn't, it's not concerned about your blood sugars, for one, if they're not concerned about your blood sugars, then why would our patients be concerned? Right. And so I don't always know if patients are non-compliant as much as they're like,
1: they just don't know. Right. And I think a lot of times, even with my patients, they'll get, they'll be quick to put them on metformin, but then they won't order them a meter or teach them how to use it. So by the time they get to me, I'm like. What are your blood sugars? What does your meter look like? Did you bring your meter into clinic? They're like, I've never been prescribed a meter. And I think another thing, especially like you talked about the medications, I feel like a lot of physicians will go all the way around the world not to put patients on proper, you know, medications such as insulin. They have this stigma that if you're on insulin, you've done something completely wrong, but you'll be on all these, you know, SG1s, SGL2s. GLP-1s, metformin, all these other pills that are costing them $150, $250 a month just because they don't want to be in a stigmatized that I'm on insulin, I must be doing something wrong. So again, even with the medications, they're still giving them a stigma. If you're did, if you on insulin, you must have done something wrong. It's your fault. You know, This is the last step on the train. There's nothing else we can do for you. And so then patients are more scared to try those medications. And it's just kind of one of those yes. things where the communication breaks down again and we have to come and re-educate all over again.
0: Yes, exactly. And what I find is most of the time when I actually explain to the patients, this is what your medication does, this is what it can do. When I explain to them and take the time to show them, okay, this is why we sometimes have to layer medications with diabetes. This is sometimes why we have to have more than one because eight organs in the body are being affected, okay? So, right. so we got we got to take care of more, you know. So, no medication right. for diabetes fixes all eight, but if we know that some of them are better than others, and if we know that some of them specifically target particular organs and particular blood sugars, like some target AM or fasting blood sugars, and some target those postprandial or post meal blood sugars, right. so. For for my my example for my patients is always okay if if a person is diagnosed with let's say breast cancer, your your cancer doctor is not going to come in and say okay, we know you have breast cancer, but we're going to treat the pancreas and hope that it fixes the breast cancer.
1: Exactly.
0: We don't do that, but that's what that's exactly what we do with diabetes and diabetes medications. We 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 just it, it's honestly a crapshoot. <laughs> Give them medication, hope it works. I'll see you in three months. But exactly. I tell my patients in the meantime, and you're right, they never get prescribed um, meters. They don't no. tell them. I have had, um, I had a patient call me the other week, and she was mad because she wanted she wanted the Libre, she wanted that continuous glucose monitor. Right. And she said she called the doctor's office, and she said that staff told her he isn't going to prescribe that for you because you can't afford it. And she's got so mad. She's like, well, how do they know I can't afford it? She's like, my husband works, my children works, I can buy stuff. And I was like, I know you can. <laughs> and how does he know your insurance won't pay for it? Exactly. I was like, you should not have to fight your doctor to check your blood sugars. Cause number one, who cares if it costs you, it's not costing him. Right. Except so, Kimberly, Um, my other educator, she has a a theory, just a theory as to why doctors don't want patients to check their blood sugars, because if they check their blood sugars and their blood sugars are not working out, then they're likely to call the doctor back and, you know, they're going to bother the doctor, um, more often than just, uh, three months.
1: That's true. And like you said, it's not, there's no one medication that's going to work for everybody. Like you said, it can be layering. It can be different things so there's over 200 genomes of the diabetes and there's different interventions that are going to work for different people and it's it is sometimes a puzzle but it takes time and you know physicians may not always have that time or um, and they kind of just say oh we'll see
0: yeah, yeah. Um, but the the thing I always remind my patients is you know so while we're working that out you know if you don't check your blood sugars number one um, what happens in the morning versus after we eat different processes. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have, so you could be high in the morning and okay after meals or vice versa, or, you know, you could kind of be all over the place, but knowing specifically where you're high or normal also helps us to do better with your meal plan. Maybe we have to change something up um, and also helps better with those medications. Um, And so knowing those numbers is like, because while we're waiting for you to figure things out, high blood sugars are still doing permanent damage that we're not undoing. Right. And that's why it's important to know your individual blood sugars. That's why, you know, I had some guy showed up, bless his heart, his once c was over 10, because from the day he was diagnosed, he never checked his blood sugars. Yes. And in all of his doctor's visits, nobody said anything. So now not only has he showed up with high blood sugars, but now he's also like stage three chronic kidney disease. Yeah. We can't fix that. Yeah,
1: so no so that. knowing
0: those, um, so, so knowing that, and, and I always feel like if patients, what's um, my patients? Know, I also feel like they're, they do take more time to, um, it, if they know that, that not paying attention to their blood sugars, not doing what they're supposed to do is destroying their kidneys. Once they know that, then they're like, oh, okay, wait a second. I got I got to do this. I got to do this. Right. So I feel like had they known prior then they they might have had a better opportunity with those kidneys um so that we wouldn't be stage 3. And like with my mom, um she's um stage 3 um kidney disease. Now her blood sugars have always been good. Her A1Cs have always been good. It's only been since she turned 70 that, you know, I think her highest has been like um, maybe a seven, but she's always stayed in the fives and the sixes. Um, but I couldn't, you know, I couldn't get the doctor. I diagnosed her. Her doctor had never said anything to her about it. Um, so then I was like, okay, well, um, let's, can we put her on this medication? Because I know that this medication has been proven to slow the progression of kidney disease. And it's a diabetes medication. Right. I couldn't get one doctor in town, not one physician-assisted. She went to like three or four different providers. Not one would prescribe this medication. Not one. And I was like, how how do we practice that kind of care when it comes to diabetes, when diabetes is still the fifth leading cause of death in America?
1: Right. Right. And I mean, I think it's you know, one of our jobs, like you said, to give those that patient autonomy to fight for themselves and to fight for their needs. But in order to know what their needs are, they need to be educated, to be like, hey, you're right. I do need to check my blood sugars. Let me call my doctor and get a meter. I do need to know what these medications are doing to my body. Let me get more lab works more often. But if they don't know, like you said, Then, how are they supposed to fight for what they believe in or what they need done for their health or how to take care of themselves better so they can have more time with their families? And that's really what it's about giving them time and living their best and feeling their best. Um, And a lot of times it's not explained to them how they get to that stage.
0: Exactly. Exactly. That's a huge point. I love the way you stated that. That's perfect. Um, And right now in this pandemic, You know, prior to the pandemic, we had, um, I think the statistic um, from um, Feeding America was something like 32 million families um, uh, suffering from food insecurity. And obviously during um, this pandemic that has exploded. Really, I have several other dietitian friends who are doing amazing work in um, food security and uh, food pantries, Um, but those people then are also adversely affected um, right. with their diabetes because of the foods that they can choose and the foods that they have. And I think as dieticians, um, we're really the best ones to be able to help work them through that and give them the best advice because so often again, what they're gonna get is, well, just don't eat the five whites. Okay, but those five whites is what I can afford.
1: Right, so that's within the boxes I, I got the I- food shelter, right.
0: Right. So I think we as dietitians are, are more equipped because that's what we go to school so long for to help them to understand because we need to help those people who are struggling with food insecurity right now to still be healthy with their diabetes. So one of my favorite things to do before COVID hit was um, um, thanks to our friend Andrea, who, um, mm-hmm. I was going down to when when Andrea graduated uh, with her nurse practitioner's license last year, uh, so she took a job at the Memphis Health Center, and okay. um, so she hooked me up. Uh, she asked me if I could come down and do free diabetes for them because they can't afford. So after work, um, I'd go down on my own time and I would do free diabetes classes, and it was oh, the most wow. rewarding time because I never used a PowerPoint. We just I took my my, my play foods because you know I love using them. <laughs> And um, we would just sit around this big table and the staff would stay. Cause you know, the chief medical officer's like, you know, man, Jeff, I didn't mean to stay this time. But once I start listening to you, she's like, I just, I just gotta stay. Because they were hearing things that they'd never heard before. Right. The patients were hearing things they'd never heard before. So I wasn't making the bill back. Cause I was like, look, I grew up in a single family home. Chef Gardy was chef in my house growing up. So I know what it's like to have limited funds. And I know what it's like to try to make healthy out of, you know, maybe yeah, not such right. healthy foods. Um, so so I love I, I, I love working with that population and I hope to get back down there uh, again soon with them. Um, so one more quick question uh, for you. Because um, see, time time goes by fast. It's been an amazing conversation. I just love you so much. Um, OK, so. As you know, when I was putting my presentation together, I had a little bit of information about the um, body mass index. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, because so during the uh, doctorate program, um, our that first first class, our very first assignment was as dietitians, um, which do you prefer the body mass index or ideal body weight, which do you use most, which is most accurate for you in your practice? because um, I think most dietitians across the country um, don't really like the BMI because it's not super accurate. Um, and so I had information um, on the BMI from Ancel Keys. So Ancel Keys was the physiologist who in 1972 um, started writing lot of papers on the body mass index. And that's when it gained popularity. And that's when we sort of uh, put it into place because uh, prior to that, we had the uh, metropolitan life insurance policies. So we got, did away with those and started using the body mass index. But in um, my most recent um, uh, subscription um, of um, Today's Dietitian, there was an article about uh, the body mass index as to is it actually racially biased as well? Because a scientist, a Belgian scientist developed it in 1832 and he based it on white males. Right. So, women and people of color do not fit those numbers. Right. And Ansel Keys said himself, "Okay, I never meant for this to be used on individuals only um, large uh, epidemiological population studies." But it is what we use. It's the standard mm-hmm. as to which people are their health status is assessed. So, your thoughts on on that, because that was just mind-blowing to me to find that out, that it was based on <laughs> white males.
1: Yes, and I think a lot of times, like I think more people are starting to realize what's going on with the BMI. For example, um, with the Asian population, they've completely run, redone their BMI because they have smaller frames, and I think that's why a lot of dietitians prefer the ideal body weight because they take into account body frames. And so certain populations like Pacific Islanders or African-Americans, they do have a larger body frame, more density in their bones. And so I think you have to do take that into consideration, especially when you're using such a strong tool to base medications off of, um, based off a diagnosis or reasoning for diagnosis and things like that. So I think people are starting to be more aware of it. um, And I think, it's becoming a little bit more um, archaic use, but I think they are trying to adapt it. Like I said, the Asian population adapted it for their body frame size, and they came up with their whole new rating and ranking system for obesity based on Asian population. And I'm hoping with more research, we'll be able to do that for more, um, you know, different sets of populations, just based on their body frame size, you know, historical weight um, statuses for that population. Yes. And I think that's one thing that we really do need to take into consideration, but. I don't love BMI. I don't really tell my patients about BMI. Um, you know, my BMI is mean, higher. And so, I think, yeah, and I think what we really need to focus on, like you said before, is not just focusing on numbers, but how are you living your life? What are some other complications going on in your life? You know, are you on 20 medications? How can we get you some of those off? Just changing your BMI numbers yeah. is not going to change those, those health factors that are really affecting your quality of life.
0: Absolutely well said, and they won 't affect them so so what we notice is if 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 there are positive impacts it's short lived and short term, so you might lose enough weight to change a lot of those numbers, but it's very short lived and short term yes. so it's not it's not changes that last past six months, right. so we have to find a way to make you healthy for the rest of your life and healthy with diabetes and know that um you know, after you've had diabetes for a while, weight loss may not even have a positive impact on those blood sugars because it's not the same right. diabetes or disease uh, that you had when you first were diagnosed. So right. if we just could stop using um, BMI as much as we do and stop looking at weight and people and just start assessing, okay, how can we help you be healthy and, and realize that, well, as dieticians, we're the experts, we can do that. Um, right. and and And- the doctors to really sort of uh, think of us as members of the team, um, exactly, and not you know these outliers that are like, you know, yeah, go ahead, you, you can go see them, whatever. Um, right. So, uh, wonderful, wonderful conversation. <laughs> I hope anybody that's listening um, got something out of it. I hope that you know um, uh, that it was uh, good information for everyone and not just the two of us <laughs> because it was excellent for me and it was just so good. Uh, To see you, Um, I know we have to be uh, careful. Uh, Even though we don't live far from each other, you're just basically on the other side of the uh, uh, road from us. Exactly. We we have to be careful. We have to be careful during this time of the pandemic. We want to keep you and your family safe, and um, especially the new new family member who is going to be coming. Um, So um thank you so much for being a part of this tonight and um so good to see you and i hope that you continue to stay safe and um hopefully i will see you in the very near future and just as remember uh everyone i've i i did not always know to do this but if you see this video and you like it please hit like and subscribe because the only way for me to actually get my own youtube channel is to have a hundred subscribers So, please, if you liked it and you enjoyed it, hit subscribe and get us on YouTube so we can make a difference. right. So, thanks,
1: everyone. Thanks, Dina. Thank you so much, Jen. Thank you. you I had a great time. Okay. Thanks. Me too. Bye. Bye.